welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, what's yeah. going on over there? We didn't, usually we decide on a pre-show topic beforehand and we didn't do that this time. That's true. Um, How about that? What's in I, the news today? Uh, oh God, let's not talk about that. <laughs> let's seriously not talk about that right now. You know um, what, actually, along uh, those okay, lines. Okay, because I did have something Oh, oh, oh that's then. movie related, but no, you go on your, your thing. M- mine is movies and not even politics, but po- political culture related. Um, the whole thing about like the, the Catholic boys and all that and, uh, and like seeming to like confront the, this native American gentleman and all that. And then like what a longer video reveals. And there have been like a number of articles written about viral I, videos. I don't know. Yeah, I also don't know that I would use the word reveal about any of that. Everything has added more layers to it, more but layers. I still think, yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone really, I, I think there are people who were there when it happened who don't really understand what was going on. Well, and what's interesting is there is an entire third group that is most, that was like yeah, yeah, completely ig- yeah. ignored. Um, uh, yeah. Like that one photo, like it speaks volumes, but there's a lot more to the story. Yeah. But on Facebook, somebody actually said something really interesting and they tagged me in it. Okay. Um, where they said they'd be really interested to know um, what it is about human nature, uh, that, that allows, that allows them to accept like a video is presented and certainly it's presented as, as this is documentary footage or whatever it is. Um, and what is it about human nature or the way we react to video or visual art or whatever it is, um, in which we just sort of accept things and and don't necessarily and feel like okay we got we got what we need we don't need the longer footage or whatever and it just got me thinking about even bigger things like the concept of the limits of the frame and the idea that like if something is out of the frame it's literally out of our brain like we don't even think about it and which is why in horror movies when something springs out from the side you're like you know in real life they're in the middle of a warehouse like that thing would be You'd see it you'd coming see it from coming a mile or away. You'd hear it coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, that's a good point. And I just think that it's and it's um, the same with with like the Kuleshov effect and and just we feel the need to oh two things are put together we will put a, we will make a narrative out of that like we feel like we will we tend to from a visual art standpoint accept what is brought to what is presented to us and we will find a narrative. And, and certainly if somebody presents us with a narrative, that's fine. But like, we will find one that's there. It's like that yeah. old Vietnam photo of the guy holding the gun on the other guy. That looks like the nature of oppression. Meanwhile, the guy about to be shot is a murderer of children uh, about mm-hmm. to be shot in the street. And while he probably, while that's not the kind of justice we like, yeah. he's hardly an innocent, you know, um, but he looks innocent because the photo presents it that way. But I will also say that to get back to the, the 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 thing that went viral there mm. there's such a thing in terms of in a movie mise en scene objects carry symbolism when someone leaves the house with a make america great again oh, hat it's, on it's, they want you to know certain things about them so yeah. I, there are a lot of assumptions that were made about that boy that i don't think are unfair because he knew what he was doing when he put on that hat right and yeah, went they, out in public yeah, he he was dressed a certain way, so we should make assumptions about him. Yeah, in that case, yeah. In that, okay, because yeah. he is specifically putting on a hat that carries uh, political implica- implications, and I would say at this point, inescapably, 
implications of racial racial animus. And yeah, and to me, it's like at this point, anybody that nobody wears that hand, it's like this should be fine, right? It's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's it's a provocative. That's the word. Yeah, yeah. When I. Uh, <laughs> I remember, you know, when you're a kid, you just kind of wear what's there. You don't think really about what, what it is you're wearing. I remember like my uncle had a, got a hat at a car dealership, big Mike Naughton Ford in Denver or something. Uh And it's just a hat and we're all going to go fishing. I was like, I'll just wear that hat. It's, it was like bright pink Uh and it's big Mike Naughton Ford. And it's just like, when I think back, I was like, what? Why would I ever wear that? Because like, I'm a kid and kids don't give a shit. And, but yeah, that's the thing is, could, and yeah. like a MAGA hat is not a big Mike Naughton Ford hat. Yeah, it's yeah. not a thing you grab on your way out the door. Yeah. Because even yeah. having it in the first place, <laughs> sure. It says something. So yeah, that, uh, the, yeah, I'm glad you brought that into the idea of framing and mise-en-scene. Um, because I, I don't want to get into the whole political argument, uh, about it. Well, it but, is, it, it, it's just fascinating to me because I remember, one of the classes, I don't remember what it was. One of the classes at UCLA, we talked about what is visual art, by which I mean like video art, you know, uh, the, the person taking video of the Rodney King beating, like, is that art? The person doesn't necessarily meant to express, they're not trying to express anything, but they are trying to capture something, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that means something to them. And so it just it leads to a larger discussion that I find fascinating in the midst of uh, a politically charged moment. So anyway, anyway uh, what did you um, want to talk about? Uh, I don't want to. I was going to talk about how, like, um, the sort of niche within the niche, okay. like the consensus on the, the larger critical consensus on Welcome to Marwin. Okay, is very negative. Okay, but then within the travel the circles that I travel. I'm the outlier for not liking it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, uh, absolutely. And I, so I wanted to like, but I also wanted to address that being on the side, because I, the people who, uh, the, the people that I am friends with and I follow who, who defend welcome to Marwin have a lot of great points. And, there is something we said for the fact that most, especially mainstream negative reviews of welcome to Marwin have been very facile and have refused to engage with the deeper themes that are going on in the movie that people are responding to so well. Absolutely. I think the movie absolutely deserves to be highlighted for its sort of perverse moral and psychosexual curiosity. Like there's a lot of really interesting things going on, but I also feel like, the welcome to Marwin defenders are willfully ignoring the pandering patented Zemeckis bullshit in the yeah. final act of the movie. Um, that really turned me off. Uh, and I was, so I was going to talk about that specifically to address welcome to Marwin, but just, just in general, the way that, um, cause we talked to, this is a month or so ago about the idea that everyone, like whatever you're into, there's someone who's more into it than you are. Oh yes. Like I can judge people for, liking middle brow stuff like green book and not being interested right. in more esoteric es- esoteric. That's a bus, uh, Torco tour bus company here in Los Angeles, <laughs> uh, more esoteric fair. Um, uh, that is fast. That's the, that's maybe the fastest joke uh, you've Oh no, made. no, that's real. Sorry. That's true. Yes. I read their blog every day. That's why it's in my, in my oh, head. And right. I listen to their podcast. All right. Uh, compliment rescinded. Um, yeah, no, the check, check out esoteric. They're awesome tours. I, okay. t- I took their, uh, Raymond Chandler tour of downtown in Hollywood. Nice. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, um, 
Yeah, it was a gift for my wife. Uh, they do a, I think only one, cause they have like a few tours they do like every couple months, but they do a yearly Tom Waits tour. Oh, I think yes. I sent you the link. You before. have mentioned, yes, yeah. you sent that to me. Um, anyway, but like, so I might judge people for not being interested in more esoteric stuff, but then there's also people who are going to like, uh, you know, micro cinemas multiple nights a week and like are yeah. way more. So it's just an interesting thing to me to, to be, to how much, even though, we are exposed to so many viewpoints. I'd really yeah. try to seek out as many as I can. You still end up in your bubble. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's so the nature of, so the, the name of this week's episode is through the cracks. Uh, mm-hmm. correct. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure <laughs> you didn't prepare for the wrong yeah. episode. Uh, like I did last week. Um, and one of the movies, in fact, maybe a couple of the movies that I'm going to bring up are movies that were huge at the block, bu- at the, at the box office, oh, they're giant okay. blockbusters. But for us and people in That's our circles, they're through the cracks because people are like, yeah, I saw it. Who cares? Like, okay. it's, they were, they were immediately the, dismissed because I had a different. Well, let's get into it, shall we? But let's Indeed. let's pay some bills. OK, and then we'll get in and then I'll say our, my, my catchphrase again. Indeed. Uh, this episode is brought to you by by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi are two movies by Catherine Bigelow, Near Dark and Blue Steel. I'm ashamed to say I've seen neither. I've heard great things about Near Dark. Uh, and you are a fan of Blue Steel. Big fan of Blue Steel. Um, I used to have a poster. Um, you did. At, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, of, 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 um, of Jamie Lee Curtis uh, and her gun. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just a, it's a terrific sort of, uh, I guess it's a neo-noir type of, it's a, mm-hmm. um, it's about a regular guy who, well, I, what's interesting about the movie now is how much, how relevant it seems to conversations that have come, that have moved to the forefront over the past few years, specifically about guns and about feminism, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and, and white male power. Cause Ron Silver plays a regular guy, not a regular everyman. He's a rich, yeah. he's a rich guy who there's a, some sort of uh, convenience robbery or something goes wrong in which a gun ends up on the street and he, yeah picks up the gun and suddenly becomes the villain of the movie because he has so much power. He just starts going around shooting people and Jamie Lee Curtis plays the, the, the cop who is on his tail. Um, it's really terrific. I remember, uh, when we did years ago, when we did those videos at cinephile, I think Lorraine Newman mentioned that moment where Ron Silver picks up this gun. And it's this idea that like, if he had not, if he did not pick up this gun, he would have just continued living his life, mm-hmm. but there's something about the opportunity that the weapon provides. Yeah. Um, or but the, I think also the means, I guess in, in term in, in socioeconomic terms is also the fact that he's already at a point where right. he has certain leeway in the yeah, world. He feels it, untouchable. And it, now this is the next yeah, step exactly. there. Yeah. yeah it's, really terrific movie. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, these movies and more are available at movie and you can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M U B I.com slash battleship to redeem now. And then this week's episode is also brought to you by the dice enthusiast presents podcast, a 10 chapter podcast miniseries about four roommates who endure a number of life changing events while simultaneously 
simultaneously playing a board game that lasted for the entirety of 2017. So if you want to check out more, just go to DiceEnthusiast.com or click on the ad at BattleshipPretension.com. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com. TweakedAudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. You know what I was listening to today on my TweakedAudio.com earbuds? What's that? Well, you know... I don't know if you've seen that um, Johnny Greenwood's score for There We Blood has been put out on vinyl. Oh, I did not know that. Well, in addition to that, they've also released, I'm not sure if they're on the vinyl or if they just released them uh, online, but two unused tracks oh. that have like never before been heard, I guess. Um, I'm sure they're probably pretty soothing. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, they're uh, they're great. So I was listening to some uh, Johnny Greenwood music from There Will Be Blood that I had never heard before, and it made me want to watch There Will Be Blood, which I want to watch most of the time anyway yeah uh it sounded great at my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Um, except one more digression. Okay. My wife. I have one too. Uh, my my uh, my wife. I've been uh, with. I've been married to her for over four years. We've been. It's been over a decade now since our first date. Um, and she has. Not only has she not gotten used to my Midwestern accent, she has like calls me on it more and more often. Okay. So I notice it now more. All right. So I say tweaked audio dot com okay i don't say like it's different than how other people would say it okay but i don't know how i just know calm is something that i say it's that o sound i say gone yeah say yeah calm. it's not a, it's not a f- it's, straight a it's not yeah. cam yeah but it's somewhere in between it's a stretched you. out yeah, yeah. like um, audio.com calm calm oh yeah okay. yeah tweaked audio.com especially if i don't think if when i'm doing that whole like right uh, thing and I'm trying to remember to take a breath. I'm not thinking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're thinking uh, about staying alive because you got to take that breath. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's your digression? Oh, just, uh, I just wanted to plug something real quick. I'm, uh, this week I'm on the out now podcast with, uh, Aaron and Abe talking about, uh, M night Shyamalan's glass for a very, very, very long time. Oh, fun. Uh, longer. I would venture to say than he thought about the film. Uh, as far as, you know, from an outline standpoint, a structure oh, okay. standpoint. That, I mean, like much like Welcome Tomorrow when Glass has its defenders. <laughs> it really does. One of my uh, More Than One Lesson uh, co-hosts, Reed Lackey, like, loves it. And that's the thing is it's a film. It's a film that, as I said, like, it leads with its themes. So if you're on board with those themes, you'll probably like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am as well. But to me, it's just like, I don't know, maybe it's the... It's years of watching Christian films and just telling myself theme isn't enough <laughs> needs to be structured. Well, what characters I care about, but anyway, we can move on. <clears throat> All right. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Shall we for the third time? Um, now I, uh, I always love doing this episode. This was, uh, an episode that was your idea, mm-hmm. um, as, uh, plenty of our, uh, recurring episodes are actually, I think it's safe um, to say, uh, half of them were yeah. mine and half were probably yours. That makes sense. Um, 
and every, but every year I kind of approach it a little bit differently. And okay. I think this year I specifically, cause I, I, I tried to avoid this is it's called through the cracks, which doesn't necessarily to me mean underrated, which is something that I have leaned toward a mm. lot, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But this year I chose to do things. I basically, I chose to do things that I didn't think enough people saw, right. not because like I, I was on I was on the border of including and I'll, I'll say it because it's not included on my list here. But uh, the little stranger, the yeah. movie, uh, the Donald Gleason, um, the Lenny Abramson mm-hmm. Abramson movie. Um, I really loved it. Uh, I really wanted to see it, and then it just kind of slipped away. Yeah, but but I felt like it was a big enough release. I guess being like a focus features, I think release. Like it was a big enough release, and a lot of people saw it, or at least a lot of people reviewed it. Mm-hmm. I, that was kind of one of my because we're so in our niche of you yeah. know in our bubble, uh, our critics bubble. A lot of people reviewed The Little Stranger, so you can find things. So I tried to find things that I could find fewer reviews for. Okay, so for me, uh, a couple of comments. Uh, and I, you and I had a, an off, a briefly had an off mic conversation uh, about this last week. Um, this is usually one of my favorite episodes to do. This year, it was very difficult because I haven't seen. First off, I haven't seen quite as many movies, but a lot of the movies that I'm missing are movies that are certainly not through the cracks. People have been talking about them; they've mm-hmm. been reviewed uh, quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> what I found is that uh, once you get to like my number. 16 or 17 like those are all movies i really like i really recommend and then the point of the through the cracks episode is hey here's some for me it's hey here's some movies you should uh take a second look at you know like with you it's it's movies that maybe people didn't see whereas for me this is going to sound pretentious Eh, sounds right uh it's like like, yeah you saw it but did you see it (laughs) do you know what i mean yeah uh and almost every year that's pretty easy for me to do this year, not really. This year, it drops off pretty precipitously. Um, and, you know, only two of the five movies I'm going to talk about are movies that I highly recommend. The others are movies that are worth another look. Um, because, and, and like I said, they're, they, some of them have been reviewed, but, you know, if you go to the external reviews page of IMDb, it's like hundreds of reviews. Um, but I feel like, I guess you could say it's underrated. It could also be almost to go back to the, the welcome tomorrow one thing, the idea of movies being just dismissed. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of had to do that this year because I feel like by and large, this hasn't been that great of a movie year. I feel I, like the, the gap between great and fine is pretty big. Uh, I feel like it's interesting on that, on that question of the movie year, which is always, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, arbitrary. it's very nebulous. Yes. But, um, as far as the, I mean, you and I are battleship pretension, but then there's Scott is also a member of the, the team. So as far as the three of us go, there is a real progression. You feel like it wasn't, uh, right. I'm Goldilocks over here. You feel like it wasn't a good year. Right. Scott feels like it was a very strong year. I am very mixed. I yeah. feel like up near the, the top of the the stuff you're talking about mm-hmm. the uh, a, a lot of the 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 bigger releases didn't connect with me no. or even the bigger art house releases but i feel like as you get further down the in, in into the depths and we'll see some of this stuff today there actually are a lot of really interesting movies in fact there are some like i mentioned a little stranger there are other movies that i 
am almost kind of upset I wasn't able to put mm-hmm. on my list. Like Bridie Elliott's Clara's Ghost is a great movie. There's a Russian movie um, called Dovlatov that you can watch on um, on Netflix is mm-hmm. uh, is really good. Shot by the cinematographer who shot Cold War. Uh, right. Congratulations on his Oscar nomination. Thank you. <laughs> as of today, <laughs> are you fucking uh, kidding me? Listen uh, to this. Okay. Okay. Another digression. I knew when I picked Ballad of Buster Scruggs for original screenplay, I knew, I knew that I wasn't, that it was like my last pick. It got me a grand total of one point from some critics oh, thing. For the, we, oh, who sorry, the listeners we in and we're talking sorry, about? We, this we, is for the public. We transitioned in, sorry. <laughs> we do a thing every year with yeah. our friends that's a, it's like fantasy a fantasy sports season, but it's fantasy yeah. award season. You pick, uh, a, you know, a filmmaker or a film for every category and that's your yeah. film, but you can do swaps and stuff like that. Right. Um, so yeah, your pick was ballad of Buster Scruggs for yeah. original screenplay. For that, yeah. For adapted. I had first man. Uh, a lot of people picked first man for a lot of things and then that dropped off pretty quick. Um, and so after a while I thought, it's like, well, I should swap out Buster Scruggs for something. But honestly, it was a very shallow bench for original, for screen, oh, for original. original screenplay. So I'm like, all right. I'm Especially just gonna since have... I have two of them because of yeah. the... Yeah. We, yes. we have a thing called the flex pick where you get... Yeah. For one category of your choice, you get two... Everyone gets two picks in it. Yeah. And I uh, kind of locked down original... I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. losing by far this year. Yeah. But original screenplay is my one golden goose there. Yeah. I got both of my actors because I had a flex pick for oh, right. my phone. I got them both today. Anyway, but the point is... Uh, so I had Buster Scruggs and I was like, I should trade it out. And I thought there's nothing to trade it for. I'm just going to have to eat it. And then first man wasn't getting me very much. It was getting me something, but I thought like, Oh, okay. Black Panther. I should swap it out for that, which did get me a writer's guild, okay. some writer's guild points. And I thought it was going to get me Oscar points. No, it didn't. You know what did? Uh, and sorry. You know what took its place in the adapted screenplay category? Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. What is it ad- adapted from? Two of the six stories are loosely inspired by Jack London, uh, by like Jack London. The Academy's rules on this every year are so strange, especially with the Coen brothers. Uh, Uh, Yeah, but also Moonlight a couple years ago, which was uh, Whiplash was another uh, one. Um, Yeah, uh, Whiplash I guess has more of a case because at least that it is based on a film called Whiplash that actually existed, whereas opposed to Moonlight was somewhat based on a play that was never produced. Yeah, it's Uh, it's crazy. But it was just like, oh, so Ballad of Buster Scruggs would have gotten me something if I had gone with, uh, but you if I had gone for adapted screenplay, which no one was going it, to. No one was thinking of that as an adapted screenplay. Yeah, it's up for a B. I believe it's up for a BP for original screenplay. Well, it's, how about that? It is a mess. Anyway, okay. So yeah, what I'm saying is, I think there's a lot of good movies, but I'm going to start. We, okay. we we each picked five, right? We yes. didn't talk about. Okay, five. Uh, I'm going to start with a movie uh, that. Almost no one saw that I know. Uh, directed by Matthew Brown, it's called Maine, as in the state of Maine, okay. M A I N E. And you can tell it's an art movie because you know where it doesn't take place in Maine. Oh. It takes place on the Appalachian Trail, of which Maine is the terminus. I mean, if you're going north, okay, it's the terminus. So it's kind of a destination in mind. Mm. And uh, would you say it's like another character in the film? I would say it's not like another character. <laughs> um, but it's um, yeah, it, it's it's a movie that has almost no plot in any traditional sense whatsoever, and it kind of just drops you in to two people who are hiking the Appalachian Trail together. We think mm-hmm. one is played by um, uh, Thomas Mann, not Gabriel Mann, okay. Thomas Mann, 
um, from the me from me and her own the dying girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other one is played by the actress Leia Costa who played Victoria in Victoria, that German oh, Spanish yeah, yeah. movie that was all one take. Um, she's also in piercing, which is uh, coming out uh, very soon. Um, and they're just hiking the trail together, but we sort of, we occasionally sort of pick up stuff that like they're, they started hiking the trail alone. They met on the trail and were kind of like half, uh, half walking it together, but also not committing to that. Like the, there's mm-hmm. a feeling they could leave at any time. We get we just get hints about their backstory more from her hers than than his in terms of what she left behind. Especially since she's you know it's it's one thing for a hippie kid like Thomas Mann's character who's an American to just hike, hike the Appalachian Trail. Mm-hmm. She's from Spain. Like you right. get sort of hints like why is she in America? Much less hiking the Appalachian Trail alone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it has almost no, uh, I don't think, I actually don't think it has any score. There are parts where characters who are hiking with guitars, cause they meet up with people here and there. They stay at a cabin or they yeah. just meet people. So there are parts where people sit around and sing songs, but I don't think there's any, if I remember correctly, there's not any actual score in, in the movie. It's just a, a, a very quiet, take its time sort of, here's what's happening at any given moment and yet it does in the most by being so subtle it ends up having what could be seen as a massive character arc because the slightest change in character when you're given so little means the world and the slightest change in you know reflection like they joke together but then one time maybe he makes a joke and she doesn't respond and just these tiny little little inflections um change things and it's really it's it's a movie about two people i think the idea that they're i think that the title is ironic that the idea that they're they're working toward a destination on the trail but they're two people who have no idea where they're going in their lives um uh, i felt like there was something else that i was going to say about it that i really liked but uh oh yeah that it's it's very much an actor's movie in (laughs) in that way in that it feels i'm sure there was a a screenplay it's got a writing credit on imdb but it feels like a lot of it feels improvised yeah um and not in a slapdash way it just feels like two characters i've really come to like because uh, I didn't like me and Earl the Dying Girl, right. but between Maine and Land of Steady Habits, I've really come to like Thomas Mann a lot as an actor. He's he's an interesting actor in so far as that like people are talking, understandably so, about Timothy Chalamet and Lucas Hedges, and like this, there's this class of young white actors that are getting a lot of press, and he's just sort of quietly off to the side, building this career for himself and becoming. Uh, a very reliable uh, young actor, and so I'm, I'm interested to see where he's where he goes from here. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. What's first first for you? Okay. So as I said, these are movies that I do not think. Three of them are movies I don't think are great, uh, and probably even uh, reviewed somewhat negatively um, in some cases. <laughs> but uh, I do find myself since writing those reviews thinking about them uh, and what's negative. Has fallen away, not completely, but a little bit, uh, to the point where I, I find myself thinking about them mostly positively. Um, one of them is Operation Finale, a film that oh. is structurally kind of all over the place, and 
clearly is really really revels in the idea of some kind of Hannibal Lecter situation uh, where it's like you know this is a real guy and these are real people and the atrocities were real right maybe let's not play this quite so pulpy Um, but uh, and what I just said was like hey you guys remember this right such and such Um, and the film does from time to time um there is a there's a scene that has stayed with me where uh, for those that don't know it's about the the mission to abduct uh Adolf Eichmann by uh the by a number of uh, Israeli uh, agents and so uh, Mossad Mossad right? thank yeah. you um and there's a scene where they are all sitting around um and they're mostly kind of enjoying each other's company and all that. And they're sort of planning things out. And, and I think at this point they might actually, they might, they might have him at this point and they're celebrating. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I don't recall, but there comes a moment when they start saying who they lost Mm. in the Holocaust and they go one by one. And then it goes to this one that goes to one of them who is not a major character. I wouldn't say he's even a supporting character. He's one of the smaller character. He's, he's in the film, but you don't feel like you know him very well. And so people say like, I lost, you know, my father, my uncle, that kind of thing. And then it goes to him and he just says, I'm the only one. Mm. And it's really powerful. And it's, and in that moment, along with another, you've seen the film. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where in, uh, was it Argentina or Brazil? It's Argentina. Argentina. That's right. I'm thinking of the boys from Brazil. Very different. Right. Uh, speaking of pulp. Uh, but, um, there's, there's like an, a Nazi rally going on in Argentina and it's all very secretive and, and it's, it's this idea of, you know, living where we, where we do and when we do. Yes, of course, there's the, the, the there's the all right and there's, uh, was it Richard Spencer and that kind of thing. Um, but in no, okay, unless they're totally delusional, which I guess they, an argument could be made, they are. Um, none of them think like we're going to take over, you know, but World War II, at the time of Operation Finale, World War II was not that far behind. And these, you know, to see these guys like gather in this room and say this really hateful, horrendous stuff with every intention of we are gathering power. We can actually do Mm -hmm. this from a different location. Uh, It's very disturbing. And so in those moments, a lot of the pulp and I would say schlock of the way the story is told falls away and the real stakes of what's going on uh, emerge both with where you see a group of people talking about who they lost and then a group of people saying we didn't do enough we need to do more we need to come back uh, and not a not really an ounce of regret but then you get this uh, I think a, a fairly an interesting performance by Ben Kingsley where he plays a guy who is just very he plays Eichmann and he's just very slick uh, and has planned out his his responses when people are interviewing him, and it falls so in the midst of all this it falls it explores the idea of just doing my job, um, even Eichmann, who is at a very high level like mm-hmm. well what what did you what did you want me to do if i don 't do what i 'm supposed to do, I get killed, and my family gets killed would would you not do the same you know and so the film is i would say deeply flawed from a tonal standpoint 
a good portion of the time, but there's enough there Mm -hmm. to, to remind you of why this stuff should be remembered. And it's, uh, yeah, it fell through the cracks, even with me and my review. Again, if you read it, it's a kind of a middle of the road leaning negative, but there is stuff that has stayed with me. Yeah. I definitely like that second half. I think when you talk about being tonal, uh, tonally, uneven like definitely the first half we're trying to be more of like the oceans 11 but for real like it yeah. doesn't it not only is that a weird choice it yeah. doesn't even do it very well whereas no. once they're all in that house in hiding with yeah. eichmann and it's almost like a, a stage play in a lot of a lot of scenes that stuff works a lot better and the process because i know you like process mm. like the process of them figuring out how they can abduct him that could have been great but it's treated with that oceans 11 playfulness yeah which really doesn't fit. Yeah, and le- but if it were done right, because there's another movie that I'm going to mention. Okay, this is going to be a perfect preamble into my Wonderful. next thing. Um, there's been a lot of talk with, we've mentioned the Oscar nominations are out today, the day that we're recording this at least, which is way early. You're hearing this almost a week later. Um, a lot of talk about like Netflix got its, Roma got yeah. nominated, Netflix has arrived. Yeah. But there's still a ton of movies that are really good that are on Netflix mm-hmm. or even worth watching that are on Netflix that didn't get any press. Right. One of them is a, uh, a Dutch movie called The Resistance Banker, which is a true story about the banker and the bankers who financed the Dutch resistance within occupied Netherlands mm-hmm. during World War II within Nazi occupied Netherlands. And it does treat it kind of like an ocean's living thing and it works. It's actually, it mm-hmm. makes it really interesting. Um, but anyway, there's also, I, you know, I mentioned Dovletov, I mentioned land of steady habits. No. There's a lot of stuff. And this one, this next one on my list, I might not have put it on my list today. If it hadn't been not to be one of these, you know, uh, Hollywood entertainment reporter hacks, but if it hadn't been snubbed sure. today, in the documentary category, Sandy Tan's Shirkers um, is uh, it's a freely available for everyone who has Netflix, and you should watch it. Uh, the Academy should have should have watched it uh, and, and nominated it. I mean, it had a lot of it had some momentum going. It, it was definitely a, it seemed like there was a possibility it was going to be yeah. nominated, and it and it wasn't. It's too bad. Um, but I also wonder if its approach might be confusing for some people because it has in the age of you know um documentary miniseries like making a murderer or things like that not that there's a murderer in shirkers but it has this uh enigmatic and dangerous somewhat criminal central figure that i think a more standard ver- uh documentary would couldn't have resisted building sure. around that but the the premise of the movie you don't if you don't know it's a it's a very rare instance of essentially being a found footage type documentary, except for the footage that was found was shot by the director of the documentary 20 years ago hmm. when she was in her early 20s. She and her friends wrote and directed, wrote and produced and directed a film, an independent film in Singapore called Shirkers. OK. And then their producer, who was their cinema teacher, who was this weird guy um, who was, uh, uh, American or he was Latin American by way of, uh, the United States who then moved to Singapore and was teaching film. He claimed that he knew Steven Soderbergh and he himself was the inspiration for James Spader's character in, uh, in uh, sex, lies and videotape. It's mm-hmm. a weird thing to yeah, be proud I'd say, about. I'd say. Uh, and it's also almost certainly not true okay. at all. Um, but he would make claims like that all the time. 
Um, he had a wife that they never ever saw because he was always spending his time with these, you know, late teen, early twenties girls that were interested in cinema. Yeah. And I think it had sort of a, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I guess Bengali, but also like a cult of personality type thing with them. And he, after they had completed all the filming, he took all the footage and left and they didn't hear from him for 20 years. <laughs> um, and then he died and his widow looked up Sandy Tan and was like, we, uh, he's been, we've moved all over the world. He's been carrying all these boxes of film his entire life hmm. from place to place. All the sound is lost. Huh? So they just have the, 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 the images. And so Sandy Tan made this sort of memoir autobiographical documentary about her time as a, uh, as a, uh, a young, uh, punk rocker and cinephile in Singapore, and making this movie and also the lives that she and her other two friends who made them made the movie with her, uh, have lived since and how it's been in some ways affected by Mm -hmm. this, this weird experience. And the fact that it doesn't turn into the, which would have been perfectly compelling on its own, but it would have been a more obvious choice to be like, who is George Cardona? The guy, you know, uh, the fact that it doesn't turn into that, that it in fact doesn't let him off the hook, but isn't entirely without sympathy to him as well, because he meant a lot to, to them mm-hmm. at the time. And there, um, I wish that I were as well adjusted <laughs> as these, <laughs> as these, what we, these women are about their past because they're so even handed looking back. They're still such great friends to the, the kind of great friends who can openly, let each other know when they're being assholes, which one, yeah. uh, one of the interview subjects says to Sandy Tan that she's conducting the interview. And she's like, and Sandy Tan is like, why do you think this happened? And she's like, well, cause you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it, it has this whole, just, it, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, a collage type movie. It's also a memoir and, uh, it's incredibly nostalgic and bittersweet, but also incredibly well adjusted, um, and forward looking about, uh, the past. Uh, it's a, a really beautiful movie, by the way, um, because Singapore's a beautiful place. And also because the footage they shot while looking very nineties indie amateurish in a lot of ways, uh, is quite nice to look at it. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying shirkers would have been a masterpiece. We'll never know, but, uh, they shot some really good stuff. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, a really, really worth your time. Um, and I'm sorry that, uh, you know, not the, the, the Oscars are not the, arbiter of taste but uh it's a bummer boy yeah that's not true obviously um, the bps uh are quickly uh ascending to take their place because we did nominate shirkers right i don't think we did oh, we i just looked it okay. up um uh, all right so okay next for me is wait, a film. Wait, 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 sorry I did, okay. that's just the one i think that's of my five that's the only one that's on netflix so it, it i love shirkers but it's also kind of a stand-in for all the non-roman netflix movies okay got it. <laughs> uh so yeah, next for me is a film that I've already talked about quite a bit. Uh, when we had Gordy Hoffman on the show, he talked about more than I would have expected. Uh, and it is, uh, the Meg. Now the Meg was a surprise hit. Uh, people thought it was, people thought it might be number one its first week just because of, you know, where, it, when, when it was being released. But, uh, but it went over pretty well, uh, which surprised me actually, uh, because I really thought that 
people are going to be put off by it's not being a horror movie. Um, there are moments that are tense and mm-hmm. scary, but it is nothing about it is a, is a horror movie. And, um, given that it's, you know, it's about a giant megalodon, it's a creature feature. I thought that people would, would be, uh, frustrated and feel like they'd been, um, tricked or something like that. But the film is just so <coughs> amenable, uh, or amenable. I don't know how you, uh, which, which I would say that? amenable, but I don't okay. know if that's right. Um, and it's just, it's an inherently likable movie uh, in the same vein as, and I've said it before, past expedition movies. That's what it feels like. It does not feel like Jaws uh, or Jurassic Park. It feels more like The Core or Timeline or Congo, uh, where it's this, it is schlocky with... What a, a, what a tradition. <laughs> well, it sounds, it's like, it's a tradition of three-star movies. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Um, I don't know, Timeline is pretty bad. Yeah, you know what? The minute I said Timeline, I was like, hmm like the core is just a very specific yeah. type of fun. Same with Congo timeline. But do you remember the timeline thing we used oh to yes. use? Oh yeah. <laughs> There's a just, Paul Walker RIP. Yeah. Uh, just like, I feel like kind of breaking characters. They're like in the middle of, <laughs> they need to get out of this timeline. And, he, and he's just like, come on, let's go. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's this thing where, um, he's, there's a sense of urgency. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a ticking clock going on and, uh, somebody is, is not going as fast as he would like them to. He's like, no, come on, let's go. It just seems like, yeah. he seems like such, he feels very, frat bro in that oh, moment. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like my stupid girlfriend's taking too long to put her makeup on. You let's know, go. Let's go. <laughs> um, so anyway, <laughs> when I do it, I I sound like Will Ferrell doing Janet Reno, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so the Meg, it, it is not a, a great movie, but it is tremendously fun. And I feel like it's been a long time since I've seen a movie that is that fun, but, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's, a jarring shift in tone. Uh, you know, you're dealing with character archetypes. Some of them are more interesting than others, but you definitely get a sense of camaraderie there, which is why when these, you know, characters do die regularly, uh, in the film and other characters take a moment, it could be immediately after it could be a little bit down the line. They take a moment to, realize they're like, Oh yeah, this person, this person is my friend and they're gone now and gone in a really horrendous way. And there's something that I really like about that. And, mm-hmm. and it's something you certainly don't find. You, you almost never find it in horror movies and you don't really find it in adventure movies either, because of course the situation is dire and urgent and as sad as you might be, you can't think about this person right now. You have yeah. to save yourself and your friends. We got to uh, swing across this chasm or what have you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, don't make fun of me. Adventure movies. And so the fact that they have these little moments of downtime where they're trying to figure out what they need to do while also realizing there aren't as many of them as there were uh, a while ago. And so, um, so it is just, it's this fun ensemble adventure uh, expedition film that happens to, you know, it could be, Oh, they're going to the center of the earth. No, in this case, it's, a giant shark is is stalking the waters and they have to stop it. And so uh, I think maybe the weakest part of it is honestly Jason Statham. And it's not because he's doing anything wrong. It's just that he's not giving you anything you haven't seen from him before. Uh, whereas the other characters, you've seen, you've seen their type before. But again, that sense of camaraderie is actually 
shockingly refreshing. When I went to see this movie, I was all ready to just be like, all right, here we go. Absolute shit. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it certainly was not that. And there will be plenty of people that won't like it. The next movie I talk about is very much the same. But I do think that uh, it's worth worth giving a look. All right. Uh, I'm going to... I'm going to repeat myself, I think, a lot from my last one, because my next pick is another documentary that uh, departs from being the easiest, most obvious version of itself. Um, This one is Robert Greene's Bisbee 17, which I mentioned two weeks ago in the individual achievements, highlighting the the score by Keegan DeWitt. Um, uh, And this is a movie, as I talked about two weeks ago, it's about in 1917 there was in bisbee arizona there was a miners strike in which the mining company retaliated by essentially rounding up the strikers putting them on train cars taking them up to the middle of the desert and just leaving them there um and um so the hundred year anniversary of that would be a good uh, reason to make a documentary about that event, which is what Bisbee 17 kind of is, but really it's more a movie about how we as people or as a nation or as a town or any group of people contend with our own history um, and how, how long a memory we have, how things that happened generations ago still inform what happens today and also how we commodify our own cultural or societal sins in order to make them quaint and be able to deal with them. The movie has one of the, one of my favorite parts of the movie is that is the part where it leaves Bisbee and goes not that far down the road to tombstone Mm -hmm. and shows how the shootout at the okay corral which is further in the past than the Bisbee deportation. That's what they call it. The Bisbee, Bisbee deportation. Uh, that's not what the movie calls it. Um, which would seem like that would be, uh, like they're trying to be topical. That's mm-hmm. literally what it's always been called for a hundred years. It's the Bisbee deportation. So, um, the okay, shoot out of the okay corral is further in the past and you can see how in tombstone it's become, uh, for lack of a better term, Disney fied, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. tourist attraction <laughs> and you can see Bisbee obviously having something a little more, shameful or at least you know there's one thing you know the the real shooter of the okay corral lasted less than 30 seconds yeah um this uh, and, and involved you know lawmen and outlaws this involved citizens on both sides you know um doing things that they probably didn't think they would do and that their ancestors to this day on both sides are contending with what, what they would have done in their in their shoes and you're but you're seeing some of Bisbee being turned into a tourist attraction, you know, because the mine is essentially shuttered. Bisbee mm-hmm. um, is kind of a ghost town. Although what Robert Greene doesn't get into about Bisbee is that it's kind of on its way of being sort of rediscovered by the hip bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. like having like, uh, you know, just like Joshua tree is here in California. Just people like, Oh, you can buy land cheap in Bisbee. Let's go out there and there'll right. be farmers markets and live music. <laughs> and it, Bisbee's kind of, I think ha- th- that's happening a little bit, which is probably good for its economy, but also those people are insufferable. Um, Joshua tree is a beautiful place full of insufferable people. Um, but, uh, uh, I what I was gonna say, but you can like tour the mine like now. Uh, and I'm, paraphrasing what I wrote in my own review almost a year ago. Um, 
more tourists go into the mine to tour it than to work there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, of course the Robert Greene's presence there is, uh, is the is a catalyst. It's the, it's part of the movie's question is how much would the town of Bisbee be confronting its past about the hundred year anniversary. If Robert Greene weren't there with the film crew asking people about it and that and staging recreations, right. that becomes a part of the movie too. Um, and so while the Bisbee deportation itself has a lot of relevance to, to, to today's questions, uh, and, and today's diff- difficulties in America in, uh, established parts of the culture dealing with newer immigrants because most of the, most of the miners who stra- who were striking and were de- deported were, um, either Latin American or Eastern European. And most mm-hmm. of them were first generation. Um, and so yeah, the movie does not shy away from the fact that there are these one-to-one comparisons to things that are going on today, but it's interested in something much larger, uh, than that. And that's why it's, um, uh, it's, it's it, I think one of the more probably the most ambitious documentary on my on my uh, my top movies of the year list. Not that it's on the top ten. Obviously, none of these will be in my top ten. That's oh, part yeah. of the part of the prerequisite, which I didn't mention. That's a big problem for me actually, because yeah. <laughs> in my top fifteen are are like three or four movies that would absolutely be in yeah. this episode, except yeah. they're in my top ten. Um, incidentally, right. I I locked into something as you were talking that made it difficult not to chuckle to myself, which is that the Bisbee de- deportation sounds like a rock band in the seventies. Uh-huh. Uh, we are the Bisbee deportation. Yeah. Uh, it just seemed like one of those, uh, insu- go back to the insufferable bands yeah. uh, that take themselves way too Opening seriously. Opening for Geronimo Jackson. <laughs> Uh, you remember that reference? Uh, you, uh, you have made that reference many times oh, at this okay. point. I just laugh at you making the reference, uh, than the actual thing. Okay. So next up for me, um, yeah, all right. Well, I thought uh, you were, were going to call an audible there. <clears throat> what? Oh, no. Um, I'm trying to think of what order to go in. Uh, I put these in order of like lowest on my list to highest. So did I. Um, okay. So, well, then I'll just stick with that then. Uh, next is a movie very similar to The Meg and a movie that I had a mostly negative review for, uh, and that is ugh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Um, very so it's J.A. Bayona who made my favorite movie of 2016, A Monster Calls. Um, right. And so the first Jurassic World, you uh, listeners know that my with from my video essay that uh, I definitely think there's a lot going on there, even in the midst of a mess of a story and non-existent characters. Uh, and the same thing happens here. Uh, it's it is. Uh, it's essentially split up into two movies, one on the island and one in a mansion. It feels like a ghost story, except the ghost is a genetically modified raptor. Uh, it's very, very strange. But the atmosphere, especially once they get to this mansion, the atmosphere is great. It feels mo- the most like a, a straight-up horror movie of any of the uh, the Jurassic Park or world films. Um but what I also like is that even if they do it in a very stupid way, which is uh, regular, uh, regularly, um, you know, there's that that scene um, uh, in the first Jurassic Park with Ian Malcolm talking. You know, they're they're debating the the ethics of doing what they're doing, and 
as much as flawed as the first Jurassic World is, and this one, um, they don't shy away from that discussion. The idea of you know these animals have been brought back, and so does the company own them? Mm-hmm. Do they treat them like actual animals? Stuff like that. Um, in this, the thing that really strikes me, and I and I absolutely think that J. A. Bayona, when you look at the general mournfulness of of a lot of the movies that he's made. Um, certainly a monster calls. I think he is really steering into the fact that yes, the, the dinosaurs can be very scary and very lethal. And when it comes right down to it, uh, if it's them or us, we should choose us, but they didn't even ask to be here. Mm -hmm. You know, they, in fact, they weren't supposed to be here. They're here because we brought them here. They're like stolen teenagers or they're like Dante from clerks. They didn't ask to be born. And they're not even supposed to be here. Today. Exactly. <laughs> now imagine somebody uh, wants to kill Dante because he's such a he's such a threat. Um, so I think it's it's the the real sadness of, and you can you can make larger points than just you know animals. You could talk about the Earth itself. That um, while we debate ethics and while we try to figure out what we're supposed to be doing, uh, the impact that we're having on nature and on something that is truly innocent and means no ill will, even the, even the, the most monstrous of these animals, uh, it impacts, it impacts them the most. Um, and so there's, there's a moment where the, the, the Island is now being destroyed. Uh, and the very last image you see as it's halfway through the film, they're about, they're leaving, uh, the volcanoes blowing up and you see a Brachiosaurus, the, like a silhouette of a Brachiosaurus, like in smoke and it looks exactly like the Brachiosaurus at the beginning of mm. Jurassic Park. And so it's like this image of wonder, and here it is being engulfed in, in smoke and flame. And, and so the film, again, is very dumb in a lot of ways, and there are, there are plot developments that you're just like, what on earth are you doing? But from a tonal standpoint and a thematic standpoint, I think J.A. Bayona is, is actually doing stuff uh, with it. I mean, Jen... <clears throat> she and I saw it together and she really likes Jurassic world. And there are things that I like about it. It's very rewatchable. She's like, I don't want to rewatch that one. It made me, it made me too sad. And that's on purpose. And like, it's, I don't know. I actually don't know if people like the second Jurassic world or not. I know that critics mostly don't, but as far as the intent, the, the intended audience, as far as the fans, <laughs> not critics, the yeah. fans, I'm being facetious, everybody. Um, as far as that goes, uh, I know that they did that. I'd like to know what they think of it. It's not a film that I like. I, I wanted to return to the first Jurassic World from 2015 just because a lot of it is very fun. This one I don't want to return to mm-hmm. because it's notably darker in every way. What if it had Jimmy Buffett in it? It's my favorite movie of the year. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Next up for me is Elizabeth Chumko's What They Had. Okay. Um, this is probably of the of the five movies on my list. This is probably the one that did get the most uh, attention, or in terms of I, I had was the most reviewed. I guess Shirkers maybe got more attention. This is not the point. The point is that um, uh, What They Had is a directorial debut, <clears throat> but um, from a um, playwright. Shaky ground, you yeah, know. Oh yeah. <laughs> it definitely worried about uh, about the thing being creaky or playing to the rafters. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but it's uh i found it to be not that at all i know some reviewers did um uh, I found it to be a movie that is a. Uh, uh, in, in many ways, it's a. It's a kind of a familiar um, story in terms of the grown, the you know adult child coming home to take care of the parent who is uh, um, going senile. Um, but the movie is so much more concerned with small details than with broad gestures. Um, it also speaks to something I, I I'm lucky that, uh, even though I'm the oldest child, um, my, my mom had me not, not like troublingly young, but yeah. like, uh, young enough that I, even though I'm 36 now, I don't have to worry about having to like take care of my mom. But I do have this guilt by the fact that like my sister lives yeah. where my mom lives and I live further away and, right. and when there are family issues that come up, I'm, I'm further away. And that's the dynamic here in what they had where, um, Michael Shannon is the one who stayed, stayed behind, still lives uh, with, and still, uh, and is still a part of the family with his, the, the parents played by, uh, Blythe Danner and Robert Forster. And then you've got Hillary Swank as the daughter who moved away, to California. And I, th- I think a lot of the great tension of the movie comes from, cause I think the movie, like, m- like so many of my favorite movies, what they had is largely a movie about memory. And it gets a lot of tension from the idea that when Hillary Swank's character comes back to where she grew up, to the parents she grew up in, she still thinks of her parents as the people that she grew up with. Mm-hmm. Whereas Michael Shannon has never left and he knows who they are now. Right. He knows what they've become. And there's this cognitive friction um, but between them and, and among the the family. And there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. There's a lot of specific Midwestern Catholic stuff that uh, took me back to my childhood. Um, but uh, I found it to be a remarkably well-observed um, and uh, emotional movie that's also occasionally quite funny. Um, Thaisa Farmiga plays Hilary Swink's uh, daughter. Um, and uh, I've always been a big fan of her uh, as an actress. Um, lots of lots of great stuff uh, in in what they had. Okay. Uh, next for me is a documentary directed by James D. Stern called American Chaos, and boy did I not expect to to like this movie. Um, it is a film about the the Trump campaign, uh, and when I read the description, it was actually kind of a little bit vague, um, and I just thought like, oh gosh. I wonder if it's going to be negative and don't be wrong. I'm not saying it should be positive, but I was just like, uh, who is this for? I, I know who it's for, but I was wrong. It is a remarkably even handed film and it's a very curious film. You know, as you and I talk about vice, it's biggest sin is that it is not curious. It is only uh, judgmental. It is only condemning. Uh, and American chaos is not despite the fact that the, the director, uh, by his own admission, is a lifelong liberal. He's very much in, in Hillary's camp, uh, does not like Trump. But he is curious as to how this is possible. Because if he were to, you know, if you were to go up to your average Trump voter and say, why did you vote for him? The person's not going to be like, well, I'm a bad person. <laughs> I'm a racist. And uh, he just really appealed to me as a racist. <laughs> Nobody says that, uh-huh. you know, they have, people have their reasons. You know, I'm related to people that have voted for Donald Trump and they have their reasons. Um, it was, and I understand their reasons. And in some time, in some cases, 
I sympathize with their reasons. Um, it wasn't enough to get me there, but, uh, and so I think he, he realizes that it's, it's incredibly easy to just say, I don't like him. Uh, and so anybody that does is probably someone I wouldn't like. And somebody that is a complete mystery to me, uh, not a mystery I'm interested in solving. Uh, but instead he chooses to go to a few key places, uh, where Trump would be doing very well, like Florida, West Virginia, and Arizona. Um, Mm -hmm. and of course for various reasons, it's clear why he would be doing well there. Uh, and the people that the guy talks to, some of them are people that cannot, uh, cannot verbalize why they like him and that makes it look like they're not really very informed. Others are tremendously informed, but their reasons are only okay. Um, and, and throughout it all, he seems to re he seems really committed to seeing these people as people. And I, I just think that, uh, you know, it's a very divisive time and understandably. So, uh, in some cases it should be, do you know what I mean? Like there are some things that, that other people stand for and you're like, well, I, I can't get with you on that really at all. (laughs) Yeah. 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 There are certain things you don't want to, uh, uh, it would be wrong to try to see all sides of, you know, neo-Nazism. Yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, Nazi Germany was very unified. Uh, (laughs) it's not the kind that's not what we're looking for, but, but you can still see how, decent people could vote for somebody that even they said, I'm not, I don't like this person, Okay, but I like, but I prefer him to the alternative, whatever it is. And so, uh, I think it's just, it's a very interesting film and one that is, that I have so much sympathy for precisely because it is so curious. I would say for the most part, we live in a pretty incurious time or uncurious, whatever you'd want to say. Um, and as and I I really like American Chaos for all the reasons that I don't like Vice, um, even though both of them were made by left leaning guys who I probably disagree with mm-hmm. uh, a lot politically. That's not the issue. The issue is their attitude behind the films mm-hmm. they make. And uh, yeah, I I really cannot recommend American Chaos highly enough. Yeah, I really want to see it. Um, all right, my final through the crack is real through the crack. Um, seems like very very few people saw this movie um uh, that's one of the things about uh that i'm very grateful for being you know a semi-professional film critic i get a lot of access to things um but sometimes it's just makes it i'm i'm really glad to see these movies but it just it just makes me all the more sad that most people will never get a chance to see yours walking around in a warehouse with your voice echoing back (laughs) to you Um, no one's there with you but the final one we really really liked uh it's just gonna miss my honorable mentions list i think this year um is ricky d'ambrose's notes on an appearance um which is only a it's a 60 minute movie um about a uh, young man who moves from the suburbs of uh, New York City um, into the city uh, in order to... He's a young, aspiring intellectual, and he moves in with some other intellectuals to help them research a book, a biography of a philosopher, mm-hmm. and then he very quickly, uh, very soon thereafter, goes missing and may have been murdered or may have run away, or maybe he just went back to his family or maybe he's traveling abroad. No one knows what happened to him. And the, he starts kind of as seeming like he's going to be the protagonist. Once he disappears, he's gone from the movie and the movie is about the fallout of the people in this 
circle that he was traveling in for a very short time in New York, but none of them really know him because he was new. Um, but they have in common this sort of young intellectual interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the movie has a, is, I think the movie is very moving, but also has a lot of fun poking fun at the idea of people who spend all of their time thinking and speaking analytically contending with their emotions. <laughs> um, and, uh, it, it's a, it's a bit of an oddball dark, uh, comedy. Um, it's also, uh, I mean, I mentioned that I mentioned that it's only 60 minutes long, but even maybe only half of that is actually shots of actors talking. A lot of it is also just shots of text from books or the placards at the art galleries they're going to is just long, long shots of, of, of these things that are cataloged, I think intentionally to get you into the headspace of what this character was doing, just Mm -hmm. reading and cataloging, cataloging things and maybe attempting to mimic the headspace of, uh, of people who devote their lives to purely intellectual academic, Mm -hmm. uh, pursuits. Um, yeah, so it's a very, uh, very strange. It's a, it's a one of a kind, strange, funny and ultimately surprisingly moving movie called notes on an appearance. Not sure how you can see it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. My through the cracks is a dream I had. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So my last one, you know, uh, I mean, I'm talking, I've talked about Jurassic world. I talked about the Meg. These are hardly films that fell through the cracks. And my last one at least not in the way that people would conventionally think. And my last one is a film that a lot of people we know saw, but they saw it only in a very specific context because it was made in a very specific context. And that is Morgan Neville's They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Oh, okay. Which is a documentary about Orson Welles and specifically about Orson Welles uh, in the context of The Other Side of the Wind. The Netflix released Other Side of the Wind and this film came right along with it. So, in many ways, when people talk about it, they talk about it almost as though it were a special feature mm-hmm. and not a film in and of itself. I think you can actually watch the love me when I'm dead. Having not seen the other side of I the did. wind. Oh, you did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's still, <laughs> I think the power of, of the other film still comes through. And I think there's such I think the spirit of Orson Welles comes through. I really liked Best of Enemies. I didn't love uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, I feel like there's often something of a distance, uh, not, not, a, not, in an, not in a cold way, I think in, a, in an objective way that is not a bad goal, uh, but I think that there's a distance uh, from uh, that Morgan Neville feels uh, with his subjects. Um, Whereas with this, I think he was so inspired by Orson, by Orson Welles, whether it be with this project or with any other, um, that the film starts to take on that flavor. Like the way that it's cut, it's cut together. His, Morgan Neville's other films don't feel like that. And even though the, the structure is still like, all right, a bunch of talking heads, archival footage, got it, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it feels different. He, it almost feels like, he as a director thought he needed to uh rise to the to the occasion and realize that hey talking about mr rogers is not is no small thing talking about buckley and vidal is no small thing but this is orson welles mm-hmm. and 
I'm making a movie about a movie maker. That's going to be tough. And I will say that he, he falls into a, he, he does a thing that I don't love and it's what keeps it out of my honorable mentions, which is the use of Alan Cumming as a, as a narrator. Not that there's nothing wrong with the narrator, but it keeps cutting back to him and there's no need for that. Yeah. Uh, it feels like a very conventional choice and a fairly unconventional documentary. And, and it's also because Alan Cumming used to introduce the masterpiece theater things on PBS <laughs> yeah. and it seems so like that, that it kept taking me out of yeah. like, are they commenting on masterpiece theater? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it just, uh, but it's, and what I like is that, um, so much of Morgan Neville, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm bashing him. Best of Enemies was one of my favorite movies of that year. Um, but I do feel like he, his movies are very neat. They'll love me when I'm dead is not neat precisely because the director that he's, his subject is not easy to deal with well, on, a, on a professional level, on an artistic level. And eventually you almost get this feeling Okay, I'm going to be lofty here that and the direct and Neville just steers right into it. This idea that like it's like the fact that we're talking about the other side of the wind might be more important than the film itself. And that was Wells intention the whole time Uh. that like he's going beyond just film and doing these other things. And as the and the documentary goes along and it's almost like it's it's almost like a like a hearts of darkness situation where he is he's going down the river trying to talk to this guy and finds himself going more and more crazy and in the style of the of the film and in the the way that it just is perfectly okay with not figuring out its subject i feel like it's a very i feel like it's it's definitely a, a tur- hopefully a turning point in ne- in neville's directorial style well yeah i don't know if we'll have a subject like this again, because uh, yeah, yeah to, to bounce off something you were saying there um, and take it back to his use of talking heads, he has his talking heads contradict each other yeah. sometimes, which I really like because I think the movie does this sort of dance between uh, like mythologizing Wells and then deflating the mythology of Wells, yeah. you know, and and, and uh, it can't quite decide. Um, and then the the one thing that really stuck out to me about the movie is I did not expect a documentary about Dorson, Orson Welles to feature music by suicide and the buzzcocks, <laughs> yeah. but I love his music choices yeah. uh, because I do think there's something, and I, I'm not sure if he's, maybe I'm overthinking his use of like seventies punk and post punk music um, in the, in the movie. But I think maybe it was support, supposed to remind us that like Orson Welles didn't stop being Orson Welles in the forties and fifties. Like we, the movies we think yeah. of Kane, uh, Lady from Shanghai, Ambersons, like yeah. those, those are all in the forties, right? What year is Shang- Lady from Shanghai? Those are forties, yeah. Yeah, it's like forty-seven. Um, yeah, uh, and so the fact that he was not only still around in the seventies, but still a vital artist, the idea yeah. of mu- using music that could not have come from an er- a decade earlier than that, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, I, I think is I, it felt intentional, and I just liked that I left the theater humming a Buzzcock song. Yeah, well, and and so. Th- I hope that it, that it's come through why I chose this as a through the cracks is that my hope is that it is not only ever seen as a companion to other side of the wind, which is of course how it was conceived. So it's understandable why we would think, think that way. But I think it is, it is viewed as inessential. It is viewed as optional. And in my opinion, if you are a fan of Wells or a fan of filmmaking, 
I don't think it is an optional movie. Hmm. I think it is, it is so much in the spirit of Wells, so much in the spirit of 1970s filmmaking that, uh, that I think people should absolutely check it out. Um, it's more than just a long making of. It, yeah. It's I've seen documentaries about Orson Welles before, and some of them are so are so inconsequential, so inessential. They're just so reverent. And this is the one this one really seems to get into his mindset as wonderful and as frustrating as it could be. Well, that's our lists. Um, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. You can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can probably find a lot of reviews of the movies we've talked about mm-hmm. today. I reviewed uh, three of mine. I reviewed Shirkers, Bisbee 17, and What They Had. You reviewed The Meg, Operation Finale, Finale and Jurassic Fallen World, Kingdom. and American Chaos. Uh, oh, so you did four of you. I did four of mine. Um, and I reviewed The Love Me When I'm Dead. So we right. covered a lot of our stuff here. It's all available on the website. Uh, what I say? You can email us at those places. I'm on Twitter at Davy Pretension. At those quick, places. Uh, <laughs> on the website right now. We're recording this way early, so other stuff is on the website right now as I speak. Uh, we're continuing our top tens, tops mm-hmm. ten, uh, up until uh, uh, culminating, of course, in me and Tyler's top ten episode. Uh, which we'll post, I think, on February 17th, I think, okay. or the 18th, because that's a holiday weekend. We'll see. Um, but right now, Aaron's top 10 is posted. You can read his top 10 list. Um, you've got a uh, oh, movie meltdown this week. Um, uh, interviewed J. Todd Anderson, who is the Coen Brothers storyboard artist. Um, the trailer project we talked about last week, right? Alexander yeah. Miller's trailer project. Yeah. Uh, he did uh, an episode on the trailer for one of my favorite movies of all time, John Sayles' Lone Star. Man, that's a great week. movie. Um, uh, Jim over at I Do Movies Badly is working through Terrence Malick's mm-hmm. movies. He did The Thin Red Line. Yeah. And when you know uh, Jim, it's just so delightful. I, <laughs> I imagine he is perpetually invigorated and deeply frustrated. Uh, and Alex, again, for his Criterion Prediction, wrote about Clute. So that's what's on the website. You're at more, uh, Tyler at battleship Sorry. At Tyler pretension. Right. But your other website is called more than one lesson. That's right. More and than one lesson. Oh, we yeah. had someone commented that he thought that I was saying more than one less than, um, which I like, yeah. I like but, my podcast titles to be riddles. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's still, uh, articles being written. I'm not doing the podcast really any, uh, anymore, at least not for a while. Um, I will say, uh, I, I wanted to try and keep this to one week, but I'll mention it again that uh, I am putting out a book called cinematic suffering, which is ostensibly, you know, just a collection of negative reviews, uh, or reviews of, of bad movies. Some of them are positive reviews of bad movies, by the way. Um, oh. but it, it has quickly turned into, yeah. Uh, the more I thought of how I was doing this, the more I thought, uh, I would get a bit more ambitious. And so, uh, it'll also include some original writings in which I talk about the nature of negative criticism and the role that it plays. Uh, so anyway, so, uh, I'm going to be like worth watching. I'm going to be self publishing. And so, uh, you can pre-order your copy. I'm not going through Kickstarter or anything like this, just through PayPal. So if you go to more than one lesson.com, there'll be a little graphic on the side that says cinematic suffering. You can pre-order the book for $20. That'll get, that'll also get you in the, uh, special, uh, special thanks page, uh, at the end. And it'll also, I will also sign your copy and I'll send it to you in late March, early April. 
And uh, at the moment, I'm only shipping in the United States, but I'm looking into other options. So there you go. All right. Well, thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 